The scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. This is the word of God to us. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of God to us. Thanks, Corey. Good evening, guys. How are we doing? <laughs> I'll just let that sit. Speak for itself. Man, it's so funny, like when Dylan was like, five o'clock, getting rowdy, all this kind of stuff, and like people were like, yeah, let's do it. And all the normal five o'clock people were like, hey, don't bring your happy in here. This is the five o'clock service. We don't smile, we boo, right? Tell some jokes, preacher. Dance, monkey. <laughs> uh, man, I'm really glad you guys are here. Uh, I know there's a lot of places you could be on a beautiful Sunday evening. And if you are new to our church, if this is your first time jumping in, new to our city for this weekend, my name is Chad Kinser. I'm one of our pastors, and it's a privilege to preach God's word tonight. Uh, if you've got a Bible open to the passage that was just read, uh, Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Verses 2 to 13. And, uh, and I, I don't want to have a sermon before my sermon, but I do. My heart's been full all day looking forward to tonight and getting our church in one space uh, instead of across three services. But um, what we're about to do, if you're a longtime person in church, let me sort of um, remind you what we're about to do. And if this is your first few times in church, let me remind you or um, catch you up to speed on what we're about to do. Uh, this is the moment where we open the scriptures. Open God's word. And what's happening here, the confession of our church, the confession of faithful Christians through the ages, across the globe, people gather on the Lord's Day today to do this very thing. And uh, we, we don't believe this is a dead book. This isn't just black ink or red ink, as it were, on a white page. Uh, this is the living and active word of God. And God is not dead. God is not silent. He speaks to his church as they gather week in and week out all across the globe, and he does so by this timeless book. Flowers fade, it says. Uh, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so what we're about to do is open this book, and I know there's probably lots of feelings in the room about this book, the Bible. But here's what's true. God doesn't come to us with these words with a fist. God comes to us with these words with an open hand and a wide open heart, to any and all who would come to him, however banged up, 
however bruised, however skeptical, however doubting, however limping, he invites you and he speaks, not with a fist, but with an open hand. Amen. And so it's a privilege tonight to get to preach God's word. I want to pray. You pray for me. I'll pray for you. And then we'll jump in. Sound good? Father, we do come before your word tonight from a lot of different places. Hurts, betrayals, doubts, skepticism, full of faith, ambition, bravado, fear. There's, there's, a, there's a host of things in the room tonight. There's a host of things in my chest. But Father, one thing I know and my encounter and my experience with your word is that you never waste a word and you always know how to handle me. And so, Father, we ask tonight that you would help us submit to your word. We ask tonight, Holy Spirit, that you'd help us understand the word. We ask tonight, Jesus, that you would enamor us, that you would enamor us again. It's my request that you would grant us the gift of delighting in God again tonight. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most stress-inducing activities uh, that my wife and I brought upon our kids all last summer was taking them to get a snow cone. It was a stress-inducing thing because you look up at that flavor board and you're like, oh my gosh. I didn't know a snow cone could be this complex. There's like 69 words up there, right? 69 flavors up there and all kinds of options. How am I supposed to read through all of those options? How am I supposed to help my four-year-old read through all those options? I'll probably just choose for him. Then he's going to get mad at that. And then all of a sudden, my older daughter is worried about what flavor she's going to get and whether or not a brother or sister is going to outflavor her and she's going to regret the snow cone that she got and want to take theirs and just seniority card. I don't even know half the names uh, on that board and what they all mean, especially when they get to combo flavors, right? And then it's like, now you're using even words like, um, does a flavor go with that word, right? Getting a snow cone this summer was really stress-inducing, and this is true for all of us because it speaks to what all of us experience, whether or not you like snow cones, it's decision fatigue, right? Somehow all those decisions are supposed to make you feel more free, all those decisions are supposed to make you feel as though I'm not going to get anything that I don't want. This is going to be exactly how I want it because there's all these options. How could it not be tailored just for me? But then there's this fear of making the wrong decision, right? This is true for all of us. Somehow we're afraid of limiting our options and limitless options speaks to our freedom. But on the other side, it brings us <laughs> paralysis. How do I know I'm choosing the right thing? How do I know this is the right thing? I had a really great conversation with a guy this week who is asking some really, really important questions about following Jesus. And this is where, this is where he's at. This, this is where I'm at oftentimes. It doesn't show up at the snow cone stand as often as it shows up in my own faith, doesn't it? Decision fatigue. How do I know Jesus is the way? How do I know I've chosen the right thing? How do I know something else better won't come along, right? I don't even know how to pronounce so many of the words in the Bible, just like I feel at the snow cone stand. But he's asking all these really great questions. How can I know Jesus is the only way? There are so many truths out there. How can I know that his truth is absolute? How can I know that his truth is ultimate? 
What if I limit my options to just Jesus and I come up disappointed on the back end? I respected this guy in our conversation and I respected especially that question. How can I trust Jesus if I limit my options to him but on the back side I come up disappointed? I said, man, that's a phenomenal question. And I, and I really believe that God won't leave you hanging there, right? But we're in a moment where the endless options are supposed to tell us that we're free, but more often than not, we end up paralyzed with this confusion and insecurity and doubt. How do I know I'm making the right decision? And then we come down to this book, don't we? We come down to this book. What is this book really about? There's all kinds of thoughts and opinions about it, aren't there? There's all kinds of Discovery Channel specials about this book. (laughs) There's all kinds of philosophies and Facebook posts about this book. You can even get lost in YouTube around this book. What are we supposed to get from it? What are we supposed to think of it? Does it really all come down to Jesus? Isn't that too predictable? Isn't that too simple? Does it really all come down to Jesus? Is it really all pointing to him? I start with all of that this evening because where we pick up in the book of Mark is the apex. This is the mountaintop of this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Everything that Mark is writing in these first several chapters is now reaching the tip-top point of what he's trying to drive at us. Everything to this point has been going here. Everything from this point is driving from this moment we're about to encounter tonight. Over the last couple of weeks, the narrative has taken a turn. And so eight chapters, through all these first eight chapters, the disciples are continually confused about what to do with Jesus. Who is he? What do I do with him? I'm kind of freaked out by him. He stood up from a nap and stopped a storm. I don't know what to do with that. An entire town gathered and had a town hall meeting and then asked that Jesus would leave their town because he had just healed a man who had been demon-possessed his whole life. And the disciples were like, yeah, we don't know what to do with him either, but I guess we'll keep following him. They haven't known what to do for eight chapters. And the only ones that seem to get it right up to this point are the demonic. They know exactly who Jesus is, and they know exactly what he's come to do. And in chapter one, they out the whole mission. Have you come to destroy us already? They know exactly who he is, and they know exactly that their time is on a clock but they're the only ones who seem to get it right. They know that he means war. But finally, here's what happens. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dylan walked us through this moment where Jesus locks his eyes with the disciples. Not a dead book, not black ink on a white page, living and active, God still speaking. He locked his eyes on his disciples then, and he locks his eyes on his disciples tonight. And he says, the world is saying a bunch of stuff, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's a living and active question. That's a question that keeps coming up. That's a question that's continually relevant. And everything hinges on how you answer that question. Everything hinges on that question. Who do you say that I am? What do you say about me? Not what did your grandfather say about me, Not what did a mentor say about me. Not what do you say about me. And Peter answered that question rightly. He finally got it right after fumbling all over himself. He couldn't get out of his own way. He finally said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And now what's been kept concealed about the true nature of Jesus, the God-man, is about to be undeniably revealed to these men. And there's three things I want us to see tonight from this text. The scriptures testify of Jesus. The Father commands us about Jesus, and his work vindicates him. The the scriptures testify of Jesus, him. The Father commands us about him, and his work vindicates him. So I want to jump in and get a sense of what's happening in this event, this moment called the transfiguration. It starts in with verse 2. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He manifested his glory. They no longer saw him as a common man like themselves. They saw him as the God-man for who he really is. Now, there's a really key line here that starts the whole thing. After six days. There are these moments in the book where Mark skips over a lot of detail because he's just trying to get to the point, right? But then there's other moments where he slows down and he gives us really specific detail. And this is one of those moments. After six days, six days after what? Six days after the moment we just talked about where Peter confessed him as the Christ. Six days later. So just a week from that moment, this moment happens. And the reason that Mark includes six days after that moment than this moment is because we would be tempted if we didn't know that, that this is just made up. That this is just something of a fairy tale. That this is just something of a big fish story about Jesus. That some guys went up with him onto a mountain and there he was shown like a heavenly being. Yeah, sure, that never happens to anybody. But no, Mark wants us to know this is not made up. This is not the stuff of a wish dream. This really happened. In fact, it happened six days after that event. It happened and it went down just like this. This moment is historical and solid verses three to eight. It says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I'm not even sure they had bleach in the first century and how they even had that as a vocab word, but here we go. That's really white. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. That would have been pretty crazy. They'd been long dead, long dead. And they're there. And they were talking with Jesus. And this happened six days after. This is why that's a really important thing because you already can already tell, are you really sure that this happened? No, this happened exactly this way. And Peter said to Jesus, I love this line, Rabbi, is it good that we're here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, That's amazing because of what happens in verse (laughs) 6. For he didn't know what to say and they were terrified. That's an amazing line. Like they're up on this mountain. Jesus gets intensely white, shown in majestic glory. Here comes Elijah and Moses who've been dead for thousands of years to this point. They're now on the scene with Jesus This is the holiest moment that any of these guys could imagine. Is it okay that we're here? Should we just go ahead and make houses for you guys? Like tabernacles sound good. We're on top of a mountain. I'm not sure where I'm going to get supplies. We'll get to those details later. But houses. Should we do houses, Jesus? And the text just says he had no idea what he was saying. He's just saying words because he was scared. Is this even okay that we're here? And then it says a cloud overshadowed them. 
And a voice came out of this cloud and it said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. But Jesus only. So let's jump into this first point. The scriptures testify to Jesus. The scriptures testify to Jesus. There's so much happening in these first few verses. But Moses and Elijah show up. Why Moses and Elijah? Jesus is showing himself, manifesting his glory, that he is indeed the God-man. And then Moses and Elijah show up. We probably get Moses would show up. He was a pretty big deal in the Bible. But Elijah, we would probably think, why not David? David is one of my favorites. Why not David? I want my favorite to be there. Why not Adam? Why not Abraham? Why not Joseph? Why why him? We could go down the list of all of our favorite Old Testament figures. I kind of think Jonah should have been there just because he was in a whale, and that's kind of cool, right? Why Elijah? Well, Moses was the great leader of the Old Testament where the people of God were sent out of slavery, rescued out of slavery, to be the people of God out of bondage. And Moses is the one through whom God gave the law of formation to his people. So here's the one who leads a great exodus, a great salvation of God's people. Everything in the scriptures keep looking back to that moment and pointing forward that God's gonna do an even greater one. He promised he would. And so it makes sense that Moses would show up. He's the one who gave us the law, a law we certainly can't obey, a law that we certainly fail all the time, but one that was meant to form us. Of course he would show up. But then Elijah. Elijah was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, and his whole ministry was about restoring order and restoring worship to Israel, exposing false teachers and exposing idolatry. His whole ministry was a ministry of repentance. He kept calling the people of God away from their idols, away from the false teachings, exposing the false prophets. It was a ministry of repentance. And here's what's happening if you know your Old Testament. Ever since the death of Elijah, all of the Old Testament prophets keep looking back on his ministry going, there's got to come another Elijah. We need another Elijah. We need someone who would have this kind of ministry again. They keep looking back on him and saying, we've got to see him again. In fact, the very last words of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, it ends like this. This is like the last thing we read in the Old Testament before we turn over the page to Matthew chapter 1. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord when he comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the children to their fathers. Again, this is language of talking about a ministry of repentance, a turning of the heart. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Saying, this is not a coming of judgment. This is a coming and a ministry of repentance. You'll know the coming of the Lord because you'll see the ministry of Elijah return. And so these two show up as preeminent figures in the history of God's redeeming work for his people, and they set the stage. The reason that they're here is because they set the stage for everything that Jesus has come to do. Here's why these two are here. They are here to say, everything has come to this. Everything has come to this. Everything is pointing to you, Jesus. You're the final revelation of God. We might have paved the way, but the road is now yours to walk. We set the stage, but you are now front and center, and you're the main character. 
the long-awaited redemption of all the creation that it's groaning for has now fallen on this man. Moses testifies to it. All that I was doing was pointing to you. Elijah testifies to it. I was preparing the people of God for you. It's you, Jesus. They proclaim him. All of scripture has been preparing us for this man. Every redemptive figure in the Old Testament, run your Rolodex for a minute. Every redemptive figure in the Old Testament is a shadow of this man. Every saving action gives us a glimpse of what's to come in this man. Every promise of God for his people is fulfilled in this man. Every judgment for disobedience of God's people against his covenant of love will be taken on this man in our place so that the truth of God will stand that his love really does endure forever. On this man. This is the apex of Mark's account Because if we didn't know it by now, everything hangs on this man. The universe centers on that moment. This is a massive, massive moment. And so Jesus really is, as C.S. Lewis puts it, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. you got to do something with him. You've got to do something with him. And then 9 verse 8 is a beautiful verse. It says, and then suddenly they looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It's as if to say, this moment shone in majestic glory then fades because all of these previous revelations of God, they don't matter anymore because this is the final one. They've all come to this revelation. They've all been shadows of the substance that's right before us in that man. So that's not just an arbitrary detail in the story. It's all of what he's come to do. And so I want to pull aside here before I move to the second. And just to say, when you look at this moment like this, all of the scriptures pointing to Jesus, you and I don't have a blind faith. And so maybe you're here a bit of a skeptic, or maybe you're here and you've got questions about this, or maybe you're here and like, I'm a believer, but now I'm like in a moment of real doubt. I just want to say that you, you, you don't have a blind faith if you believe in Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. All of scripture has been pointing us to him. You're not believing in a vacuum. You're believing with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people for thousands of years that have seen God to be faithful to all of his promises, prepared them for all of his promises to be fulfilled in this man. There are people, Moses is one of them, who was believing in God to be true even when he didn't see any of the promises fulfilled. He was just knowing that one day they will come true. You're not believing in a vacuum. And it's not just those Old Testament saints. It's all the New Testament saints. We're 2,000 years into this thing. You're not believing by yourself here in 2021. You're believing with the whole history of the church that inherited the faith of the Old Testament and now borrows on that, calling Jesus Lord the one who's fulfilled the whole thing. And they were not stupid. They were not ignorant. They were not narrow-minded. They were very thinking people. In fact, all of our education programs look back on their philosophies. And teach us philosophy. And smart and brilliant people 
confessing this man to be Lord. You don't believe in a vacuum. Your faith isn't blind. Your faith is eyes wide open, built on the history of the Old Testament saints, built on the history of all the New Testament saints in the church all over the globe, confessing this man to be Lord. Everything hangs on him. You believe in the light. You believe in the light. All of scripture points to him. All of history points to him. Peter's confession points to him. The whole church has been built on that same confession. We all enter the faith the same way we've always done it. With Peter's confession, you are the Christ. That's just a side note. You don't have a blind faith. The scriptures testify to him. Here's the second move tonight. The Father commands us about him. The Father commands us about him. If I just want to give you a moment of truth serum, I wanted this whole sermon to be just this one point. There is a world, and I'm not even, I'm not giving you like preacher exaggeration stuff. I really mean this. There is a world of marvel caught up for us in verse 7. You probably can't exhaust in your lifetime everything that's caught up in verse 7 if you let your imagination go there. It says this, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of that cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We haven't seen a cloud overshadow a mountain like this since Moses on Sinai, since Elijah at Mount Horeb. Every time this shows up, God is bringing down his manifest presence. And he is not only letting those who are there know that he is God, but he's also bringing forward his voice in a definitive, prescriptive way. It happens here with these words. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now pull back with me into a bit of the wonder. I'm going to try to give you <laughs> a little bit of this as I've been, I've been going there for, for five minutes. The book of Mark opens with Jesus coming onto the scene. Remember it, he comes onto the scene, he comes out of the baptismal waters, right into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days. He comes out of the wilderness, back into the city, he goes to the heart of the city, downtown of the city where he was, and he preached his first sermon. It was an amazing sermon, it was one sentence, and everyone who's hungry said, amen, I love that sermon. I can get to lunch now. I can get to dinner now, as it were, at the five o'clock. But he preached a one-sentence sermon. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning you're looking at it. The kingdom of God is at hand. He says, repent and believe. Jesus begins his ministry with a one-sentence sermon. And now here in this moment, when Jesus is showing himself for who he is, the voice of God the Father shows up audibly and offers also a one-sentence sermon about his son. And he says it this way. The first part is a repeat of his blessing from baptism. Just catch that for a second. The father so loves the son that he can't help but explode in blessing over him. He begins the first part of the sermon. He says, this is my beloved son. This one is my beloved son. I want to pull over here just for a second. Hang on the first part of that sermon. Some of you wonder tonight, can my sins really be forgiven? Can my sins really be forgiven? I know Jesus has done something, but there's got to be still yet more. And even this first part of the sermon speaks to your conscience. The father so loves his son 
that anything his son does stands with blessing in his presence. And if the son has sacrificed himself for your sins, your sins are as good as covered before the father because the father loves the son and loves everything that he does. This is my beloved son, and what he does stands. Now, that's the first part of the sermon. The second, the first part of this one-sentence sermon, the second part is what this blessing means for us. So what do we do with God's beloved son? He says, listen to him. Listen to him. It's not complicated to figure out what application looks like at this moment. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to Jesus? The Father is saying, this is my beloved Son. Everything hangs on him. All of the scriptures point to him. I explode at the thought and the sight of him. Everything is about him. Hang on his every word. Everything that he says can be trusted. All of creation listens to him. Remember the storm that he was napping in? He got up and said, be quiet. They listened to him. Do you listen to him? The demons listened to him. He walked up to the demoniac who had been attacked his whole life, oppressed his whole life, and Jesus said, be gone, and they scatter, and they actually beg, will you please send us into those pigs? And he's like, fine, get away from me, go to the pigs, and then they drowned. They listened to him. Do you listen to him? Creation listens to him. Darkness listens to him. Do you listen to him? Do you listen to your shame or do you listen to Jesus? Do you listen to your burdens and your anxieties or do you listen to Jesus, the Prince of Peace? Do you listen to your fears and your doubts? Mine can get really loud. Or do you listen to Jesus who calls himself the truth? Do you listen to your relationships and your emotions and your impulses and your temptations? Or do you listen to Jesus? Do you listen to anger and betrayal and the pit of unforgiveness? Or do you listen to Jesus? I'm not saying it's easy to listen to Jesus. There's a reason why we listen to those other voices. But the Father did not send those voices to form you. The Father sent this voice to form you. It's very different. And here's what's amazing about that. You're going, okay, I, I want to listen to Jesus. <laughs> Me too. But I want to demystify this for a minute. You say, how do I listen to him? Are you just asking me to like zen out for a little bit and sit in a certain yoga pose and then hopefully get there? How do I listen to Jesus? Peter is the apostle behind this account, this gospel account. Mark is writing it. Peter's the one who told him what to write down. But the apostle Peter also has a letter to the church, 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read this really quickly. He tells us how to listen to Jesus. Verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths. We're not making this stuff up, he says. And we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. In fact, this is Peter talking, I was an eyewitness of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory, he's actually talking about the transfiguration here. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. You're going, okay, I wish I could have been there. Verse 19, and now we have something more sure, more fully confirmed, the prophetic word, the scriptures. Peter's saying, I was there on the mountain, but that was about 10 minutes long. You know what I have with me forever? God's perfect and precious word through which his voice speaks. He is not dead. It's living and active. The prophetic word. Now, more fully confirmed because Jesus came and fulfilled his promises. And he says, and oh, by the way, you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, talking about the return, until the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all this, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Like, hey, this would just be something good to write down. No, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the voice of God through the Holy Spirit. How do I listen to Jesus? He speaks livingly and actively. You could read the same verse every day, and it's still going to have texture. Spin the diamond. Open the book. The scriptures point to him. The Father commands us about him. Here's the final turn tonight. His work vindicates him. I'll try to move quickly here. The second half of this passage turns from who Jesus is to what he's come to do. The wonder of Jesus, catch this, the wonder of Jesus is not just Emmanuel, God with us. The wonder of Jesus is what he came to do. Anyone could have come, but then God came. And then God came, well that's pretty cool, but then what did God come to do? That's where the second half of this moves. Chapter 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, don't tell anyone what you had seen until the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. That seems like a strange thing to say, but the point Jesus was making is no one's going to believe what you're going to tell them about this event. But when I'm raised from the dead, they'll go, well, of course. That sort of wins the day. Whenever you get raised from the dead, there's this non-written universal rule. Whatever you say goes. Right? And so it says, but here's what's interesting. It says, so they kept the matter to themselves, but they kept questioning in their hearts, what does this rising from the dead mean? That's different. No one's done that before. Like this, how does that work? What is this rising from the dead? But also it's true that Peter is still hung up on the fact that Jesus has just said he's going to die. He's referencing his resurrection, which means you got to die before you're resurrected. He's still like caught up. You're going to die? Remember what he did just a couple of verses ago where he's like, Jesus, you can't die. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? He's still going, you can't be resurrected. First of all, what the heck is resurrection? That's crazy. Second of all, you can't die. In fact... Why would you die? You're the Messiah. We just saw you like intensely white and Moses and Elijah were there. And so then he gets real spicy with Jesus. You don't read it as spicy, but this is a spicy reply. In verse 11, he says, well, if you're going to raise from the dead, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And so he's going to put the word of God to Jesus and go, answer that, Jesus. And he's saying, Elijah was just, we, we just saw Elijah. I asked if I could build him a house. 
The Old Testament ends that Elijah must come and then the end comes. We just saw Elijah. You don't need to die. Let's just, let's just do it now and smoke the nations. And then verse 12, Jesus says, Elijah, he does come first to restore all things. But how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? That's also there, Peter. Isaiah 53 is what he's referencing. In verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come. He's referencing now John the Baptist. He fulfilled that ministry. And he says they did to him whatever they pleased. Remember, they chopped his head off. He suffered for the kingdom of God as it was written of him. And so Peter keeps missing the central point that the kingdom of God has come. And he just thinks that means blessing. But part of what it means for the kingdom to God, of God to come is also this really important role of suffering. And Peter keeps missing that. We keep missing that. Part of what is happening, and I just want to say this to those of you who are coming in with a heavy heart tonight, part of what's happening in the sufferings of Jesus is he's identifying with us in our sufferings. Yes, he's dying on the cross as a payment for our sins, but something we don't talk about enough is that he actually suffered to identify with those who suffer. And here's what he's doing. Because those who suffer come to believe God has forgotten me. God has overlooked me. God has left me. That's the only explanation I have for this suffering. That the suffering of Jesus identifies with the sufferer because this is true. God didn't forget Jesus. God didn't abandon Jesus. God was faithful to Jesus and he won't abandon or forget you either. Jesus identifies with sufferers in his suffering and he insists over and over again that the point of all that's happening, the point of his coming, the point of his sufferings, the point of all of that is the resurrection. At the resurrection, everyone will see, everyone will know. It's not just that your sins have been covered, church. That's amazing. Don't miss the resurrection for the cross. The cross is beautiful. We love the cross. The payment for our sins, we love that. It's not just that your sins have been covered. Who covered your sins? God covered your sins. That's amazing. But it's not just that your sins are covered. Your sins have been defeated. That's what the resurrection means. Your sins will not get the last word. He gets the last word. They couldn't keep God dead. God gets the final verdict, and he declares any who are in Christ forgiven, cleansed. The resurrection is the point. It's the point to the struggler in the room tonight. Maybe sin is eating your lunch. You're now falling back into something you thought you long defeated moments ago, years ago. You're falling back into something of depression, of anxiety, of the worst, of things that you said you would never return back to. The resurrection means God does not reject you. He will not reject those who come to him. And your sin, your anxiety, your depression, all the other addictions, they will not get the last word. For those who are in Christ, he does. This is a big announcement. He will get you home. He will get you home. This whole week, as I thought about this text, my, my mind kept going back to the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I just want to read the lyrics to you that you might forget because of the chorus that you know so well. O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's a light for a look at the Savior. 
and a life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you. He promised, believe in him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There is a light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is the Christ whom the scriptures testify. This is the Christ whom the Father commands us about. This is the Christ whose work vindicates him because his tomb is still empty. Church, listen to him. Let's pray. Father, you know that we're hard of hearing. And you know that we miss your son a lot. We like to confess you, Jesus, with our lips, but listen to other voices. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear? Would you help us to see and understand the scriptures? Would you help us to obey the Father's sermon? And would you help us take hope in an empty tomb? Thank you that the final verdict over us doesn't belong to anyone else. Because Jesus, you never change your mind. Thank you that you still love me, that you still love us, and that nothing can separate us from your love. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.